Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Seaweed Brain. We have a brand new episode for you today, diving back into the Tower of Nero. We are going to be dining with troglodytes. We're going to be running from cows. We're going to be watching someone's hands get chopped off. What? Stick around. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Welcome back, besties, to Seaweed Brain. We are very thrilled to be joined by our fellow podcaster and returning guest today. It's Owen from Through the Mist. What's up, Owen? Hello. What up? What What up? up? My dudes. We specifically have you here today because, of course, we've got some lore to discuss and specifically things you may know about European history that we do not. <laughs> so everybody stay tuned for that. That's we yeah. have a real person who lives in Europe, although Britain. So does it count anymore? Yeah, it depends. Still in Eurovision Song Contest, but so is Australia. So who knows? Oh, you know, when I watched that Will Ferrell movie, I had no idea that was a real life thing. And I'm fascinated by it. I would like to get into the Eurovision real life song contest and not just the movie that Demi Lovato guest starred in. They sure did. Oh, my God. <laughs> Before we get into the meat today there's a couple things we need to address this is your cue to skip the next five minutes if you don't want to hear it and just get into the content but we did say that we would answer questions that you asked us if you put them in a five-star review so we do have a question to answer today and this question is coming to us from apple podcasts raspberry 9999977 said hi Love the podcast so much and obviously love Persebeth. If y'all are still answering questions, have you guys read Heartstopper? Because that might be up there for the greatest love story of all time, at least in my books, pun intended. Carter! You're turning it to me. Wow. Um, so Rapid fire, baby. <laughs> I read the first installment. I cannot remember if I read the second. I, I think happened to be at a point in my life when I encountered this material where I, A, did not find the story necessarily that innovative. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't in a place to really emotionally imprint on it. Also, I I don't know. This is, I might be forced to eat my words on this. I personally have kind of some feelings that stories about coming out are important and fun and nice. And that stories about romance are you know, some days we'll take them, some days we'll leave them. But I, I'm like generally a little wary of the thing of when those two things are the same story. You know what I mean? Ah, for like a timeline wise? Yeah, for someone to be a romantic lead in something and part of them being the romantic lead is them having the question occur to them for the first time whether or not it's like a category error. And to have like all of the process of working through that and the like political and identity implications mm-hmm. of that all also being wrapped up into the relationship is something that does not personally mm, register with me. It's not something that I would advise like a friend to do in life um, <laughs> either. Yeah. Uh, all of which is to say, if you enjoy this, 
power to you. There are many reason, reasons to to enjoy it. This has gotten much <laughs> longer than like rapid fire, but oh my God, Owen, where did this come from? Uh, it, you can't see the British Apple podcast reviews. Sorry, any or any oh, any country that's whoa. not America without without doing stuff. So um, it's region locked. Wow. I was really bored earlier today and I ended up looking at the reviews for like a load of other people's podcasts. Yours is one of them. And I saw this and went, I'm going to share that with them. (laughs) Oh my God. Owen just dropped a review into our outline Google Doc from September of 2022 from Katie. Hi, Katie. Thank you for this, for sharing this with us, Owen. Um, it says, it's definitely not weird to listen to 80 episodes of a podcast discussing the Raritan verse when you've never read a single book by Rick Raritan, right? Anyway, that will soon be changing. So thank you, Erica Carter, for finally getting me to read these books, as well as being wonderful to listen to, even when I have no idea what was going on. Oh, my God. Are you sure that's not Katie from the damn snack bar, like, trolling us? I wouldn't be able to see it if it was. <laughs> that's genuinely wild. Oh, my. And we also have to shout out Emoji775 for the review. And somebody who wrote a review, uh, but your username is in a language that I, I can't pronounce, and I really don't want to do a bad job. So thank you. And we'll continue to get Owen to send us the um, British Apple Podcast reviews that apparently we can't see. Thank you, everybody. Let's Let's get into the content, shall we? Carter... Where were we underground? We last left off as we were about to begin dinner with the Trogs and a more formal discussion about negotiations to accomplish all of our plans in attacking Nero and his various traps. Where did we leave off? We didn't talk about Will's hat being a lampshade. I think that's very important. Oh my I, God. I... <laughs> Is he still glowing, right? Is yeah. he? Yeah, no, yeah, because at one, one point, they quote something like, uh, the Trogs kind of just ignored Will because he almost looked like a bright, uh, just a light following Nico around. Just Nico's light source. That's all he was. I love the fact that they all have different hats. I do think we briefly discussed this, but it is very important. I think it's absolutely adorable. And there is like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but culturally we use troglodyte as like an insult for uncultured people. And so here the Trogs in reality consider themselves to be highly cultured um, because of how many hats they wear, which is so true and adorable. And at the risk of infantilizing them, the troglodytes are so cute. Oh my God, I love them. They're like little blep blep lizards. And in order to appeal to them, Will is like, you should care about, you know, the crusty crust, the earth, the surface people blowing up because like, what about hats? How many haberdasheries will burn if we don't stop Nero? And that does get their attention. Yes. Okay. So I, I think we're, we're getting into now the fact that they had this conversation where mostly Nico and a little bit Will and eventually Apollo are trying to convince the troglodytes that they should invest in this conflict that might involve risk and you know, the surface world and things that they don't necessarily care about and are perhaps not really directly pertinent to their interests. And the troglodyte response is very interesting because I really feel like the first thing that they say as like a long speech, like they kind of nail it a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) No, I would 100% side with the trogs in this scenario. At the beginning when they're like, we we are not going to do this, they made a lot of excellent points, I have to say. Um, And we're going to read a little bit of what they they are arguing. We trogs are only hundreds. We do not breed and breed and choke the world with our waste. Our lives are rare and precious. Nasty. You crush dwellers no besides you are blind to our existence you would not help us 
There's a lot there. I'm not going to get into overpopulation discussions because those are historically very racist and um, not necessarily uh, completely aligned with what we know about population dynamics and about you know the distribution of the creation of pollution and waste. It's all mathematical. It's fine. It's all mathematical. <laughs> it's just exponentials. That's all it is. <laughs> But other points were made. Are, are the surface dwellers going down to help the trogs? No. No, they're not. When the bulls are in their, you know, constant generational struggle against the trogs, where, you know, where's where's Will Solis in that? Not not participating. You Literally, know? where is Will? <laughs> because all of them were nowhere. And, you know, perhaps this is not a relationship that is genuinely reciprocal and in which we're treating the trogs as full humans. But all of that notwithstanding, Apollo gives us in response... The speech about how he basically is like, I used to agree with you because I also used to find human life to be fundamentally very silly and um, uh, <laughs> important. This is perhaps the one millionth Apollo speech about the importance of valuing human life, to which I say, I fear we might have to bully him all over again because he's getting annoying again. <laughs> and now he's just on his high horse. Uh, let's see, page 186. He says, but that is not why you should help us. Not just because it is good for trogs, but because we must all help one another. That is the only way to be civilized. We, we must see the right way. And we must take it. Hurrah! Hurrah! Huzzah! Oh my. The trogs give a tentative, maybe non-agreement that they're going to help. And then the cows attack. The cows you might remember from, from Brooklyn and spontaneously combusting in anger when they fall into pits. Those same cows are back. The intergenerational foes of the troglodytes and they're just ruining everything. And it is the fault of our mm. team because the cows did follow them here. And everything kind of goes to shit. I don't know. The cows are rampaging. We get separated from everybody else. We have to get whisked down the river by um, Gur Fred. Icon. Gur Fred. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. Can you actually pronounce that better, please, Carter? I know I'm you have sorry. it in you. <laughs> it's difficult. We don't actually have a sonic reference for, for the correct pronunciation of the book. Rick does not use the international... Well, you have to try. Fred, maybe. Do we think that's better? There you go. That was excellent. <laughs> Owen, your turn. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Nice. Good the choice. Role. Good choice. Okay. <laughs> the new question we're going to be asking is how did you pronounce Fred when you first read these books? <laughs> um, yeah, as they're being like ushered along through the underground, um, Apollo says the next five minutes were not just chaotic. They were what chaos is like when chaos wants to let her hair down and go nuts. And believe me, you never want to see a primordial goddess go nuts. It's giving a little bit e-news in like the early 2000s. So you like, let her hair down and go nuts like girls gone wild chaos. Like, <laughs> oh, Apollo. Um, anyway, we, we make it through this chaos and there's a little moment on page 197 as they are departing from Fred. And he's like, Apollo gives um, Fred one of the little baby troglodytes crystal ball toys and is like, please make sure for me that the child gets this and i really appreciated seeing that after his monster profiling acts at the very <laughs> beginning of this book i appreciated seeing him have respect for a child whether that child is a person or a monster yeah do i forgive him for racially profiling that poor man on the train no nor should you but i did appreciate seeing this i feel like more of this yeah we're gonna get some more 
but basically like by the time like when we started this chapter things were pretty simple we were like we're getting down to the trogs nico is charming them with lizards they're gonna agree to help us because apollo's gonna sing a song about it but now here by the end of the chapter we are like wait a second we just got interrupted by the bulls nobody agreed to help anyone with anything like the plan was not formalized and so we're about to like charge into the tower of nero with no clue as to whether or not the trogs are going to serve as our backup and I appreciated that because I think the <laughs> twists and turns that this book take keeps it very exciting and a little bit unpredictable. And Rick was like, you will not think this book is predictable. This is bigger than the last Olympian. I swear to God, the stakes are higher. Like, you know, we're pretty sure, but <laughs> it's fun. It's a little, little kick. Anyhow, we're off to the tower. We poop out of the sewers in Midtown. The Tower of Nero, as it turns out, is a regular... It's a regular Midtown skyscraper. A glass and steel monstrosity of the ordinary Midtown variety. Roast both Midtown and Nero, and also modern architecture. As as a civil engineer, I would uh, like to defend <laughs> my fellow buildings and glass structure and, and structural engineers, because, you know, steel is actually more environmentally friendly than some other materials you could be choosing. So, you know, just saying... Wait, I want to hear more about this. What are the less environmentally friendly building materials? Concrete. Mm. Your two main building materials for everything these days is steel and concrete. And about, so I think it's like 40%. Large chunk of global emissions come from construction. A good third of those are purely from cement creation, which goes to feed concrete. So if you can cut out concrete, you can cut out so much and if you can find a substitute for cement you can cut global emissions down quite drastically okay slay nero (laughs) (laughs) a little global carbon emissions reduction slay isn't glass like sort of inefficient though like if you have like all the glass windows and walls and stuff because then you have to use so much energy heating and cooling the building depends on which way the glass faces depends on how you measure efficiency as well so there's a measurement, uh, like, I think I think it was Bream, and they're, like, one of the most efficient buildings um, in the world just had a full side, which was just all glass and nothing else. But it was really efficient because it heated up the building. So it, keeping mm. buildings temperate is another thing that is rather difficult. Wow. There is so much to know in the world. <laughs> I love learning new things. Thank you for that, Owen. The the real expert here on civil engineering, for real. Well, as we are staring at the glass and steel monstrosity of the ordinary Midtown variety, Apollo notices that folks in business suits clutched briefcases and phones as they hurried to catch their trains. Some exchanged pleasantries with the security guy on their way out. I tried to imagine those conversations. Bye, Caleb. Say hi to the family. See you tomorrow for another day of evil business transactions. And I laughed because (laughs) that's what I think that people sound like when they come out of buildings in suits. (sighs) Instead of saying, see you for another day of evil business transactions, they say shit like, we provide value through liquidity, which is basically the same thing. (laughs) Um. (laughs) That's a roast on our friend. He's not going to listen to this. (laughs) Okay, more The Last Olympian callbacks, right? Because not only are we in midtown Manhattan, but Apollo says, I was reminded of the guest entrance to Mount Olympus through the lobby of the Empire State Building. Normally, I never went that way, but I knew Zeus hired the most unimpressible, disinterested beings he could find to guard the desk as a way to discourage visitors. I wonder if Nero had intentionally done the same here. Hmm. 
Are we are we making parallels to Nero and Zeus now? What's what's this? Huh? Anyone? <laughs> oh. Are we starting that, are we? What's happening here then? Especially because Nero's about to go on a whole rant about like being a father. Hmm. 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 What a juicy, what a juicy passage. It's the last Olympian. It's the parallels between Zeus and Nero. It's a little Rick observation on bored front desk workers and explaining it <laughs> through the demigod universe. But yeah, they have to check into the building and present IDs at the door. Carter, what did they present? Apollo presents his learner's hermit, which you might remember as being kind of an important figure in, oh my God, I'm blanking on the name of the book. This is so embarrassing. In the beginning of The Trials of Apollo, literally, I do not know what the first book is called. The Dark Prophecy? No, that's... Is it The Dark no, Prophecy? No, it's not Dark no, Prophecy. No, that's number that's two. Yes, yeah, second one. What's the first one? Don't tell me. Don't tell me. Oh my God. This is humiliating. It's not The Burning Maze because that's the third one. That's the third one. Like, literally nothing happened in the first book. So what could uh, it be called? Wait, where were they? They were, were they in the first book. Hidden Oracle. Hidden Oracle. What they were the looking hell? for the growth. I've never read a book called The Hidden Oracle. Is this going to stay in? Oh, my God. I have no recollection uh, of that. <laughs> anyway, wow. Shout out to that. We're back at book one. We remember that there's five books and that something happened in book one. And specifically what happened was there was a learner's permit. And that's what we're calling back to in this moment. Meg, on the other hand, presents her rings as ID. Her rings, which, of course, are magical weapons that turn into her Roman gladiatorial two curved blades. And that, like, works. And also, it looks like Meg has done this many times. Not only is this something Meg has done many times, like, turn in her weapons um, when she gets back home, but also another Ew, tick towards demigods' weapons being, like, this, like, personal identifier that they have that serves not only as, like, a cell phone and your Apple Pay and also your ID, I guess. I'm loving this development we are tracking here. Um, Owen, I don't know if you have thoughts on the underground talking weapons ring. I mean, I like it. Jack must somehow know what the other weapons are thinking. So, you know, unless he's just making it all up, which is also just as funny. <laughs> that is true. So having turned those things in, we are now in the elevator and Meg is like going full dissociated mode. And Apollo is very concerned. Um, on page 201, he says... She was getting that shuddered expression she had when she thought about her horrible stepfather, as if her brain were shutting down all non-essential services and boarding itself up in preparation for a hurricane. I'm really concerned. But they get up the elevator and doors open to everybody like standing in position in like a perfect stage picture. The room was full of people, carefully positioned, frozen in place, all staring at us as if they'd been practicing on their marks for days, and Nero had shrieked only seconds ago, Places, everyone! They're here! If they started in on a choreographed dance number, I was going to dive through the nearest window. That's a lot. I thought it was funny. <laughs> Apollo's really leaning back into the drama queen of it all. <laughs> He's a fussy queen today. He's fussy a fussy queen. queen today. He said, no mediocre choreo for me. It's both kind of like <laughs> funny and scary though, because it's like Nero has got this power to do that and go by them places. And everyone just kind of there. Yes. And waits. It's also a very accurate characterization of Nero as not only like an evil emperor and a businessman, but a showman, you know, like an entertainment man. Which yeah. again, continuing to draw many parallels. In the throne room, can you talk about the imagery that we get here, um, Carter? It's very striking. He spends a long time detailing 
what we're seeing, both in terms of the physical environment, which is to say that it looks like a chessboard because of how many different, very uh, uh, distinctly colored uh, like rugs and furs and things are on the floor. There are, in general, very gaudy decorations. There is Nero's like fake family, which is to say like the demigods that he is holding hostage slash stepfather to. There are many different enslaved people and enslaved dryads in there also taking their places like they were brought in by someone who is a houseplant and someone who is like not supposed to be a houseplant like i think the implication of what they've written is that um this is a plant that is supposed to be growing in the wild and that nero is specifically potted this plant so that he can enslave a dryad it's bad it's bad in a lot of ways and it's it's time for a confrontation yeah should we take a break before we confront the beast himself Dun, 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 dun. So we are back. We've popped out in Nero's throne room and it's time for the confrontation between Apollo and Meg and Nero. Additionally, Luguselwa is here. Um, as we said, the enslaved potted dryads and several other people, the Germani and all of Meg's like foster siblings. As we're standing here, we're going to have to get through a lot of very scary Meg manipulation. But let's start with Nero's extremely effective villain monologue. Owen, will you tell us a bit about Emperor Nero? So Nero, Nero, Nero. He was kind of loved by the people. And as he mentions in the book as well, he got revived a couple times. The rebellions that brought up and the leaders said that they were like Nero reborn. This myth actually has a name. Mm. Nero Redivivius kind of over time started to merge and foster within the new Christians and how to the people of Rome early on Nero's revival was him bringing back as he says traditional Roman values more specifically the gods rather than the god oh wow and it also says that there was this theory that he would return after his death yes in 68 AD this was a popular belief in the last part of the first century and in the fifth century. Yeah, so it perpetuated so much that one Augustine of Hippo addressed it in a speech, stating, He now lives in concealment in the vigor of the same age which he had reached when he was believed to have perished and will live until he is revealed in his own time and restored to his kingdom. Wow. You might know Augustine by a different name of St. Augustine, who was alive wow. in the 4th, 5th century when Nero died in the 1st. So it, this myth and legend perpetuated and stuck around for a while. The Christians don't really like it, so they started to picture Nero in a beastly fashion. So St. Augustine being like a Christian figure... Why did he say that Nero was, like, coming back? I think he was addressing the rumors of it and trying to dequell it and stop it. But he, ha but it was still such a big, prominent thing that he had to address it five centuries later, which is wild in that sense. Wow. Basically, he became the uh, Antichrist. He connects to the beast in Ascension of Messiah, which presents Nero as a lawless king, the slayer of his mother, who will be slain by Christ in the final battle. And I think this also has some fun lawing implications, because, you know, that's what my thing is. The whole split personality of Nero being both Nero and the Beast. You have 
Nero, the Roman emperor, being perpetuated by his idea of the Roman emperor and certain aspects of him. Yes, he's manipulative and all that jazz and everything, but that slight twinge of niceness that probably is in there, or like the fact that he's still Nero most of the time is from the fact that people did want him back. But yeah. then the beast comes from all the twisting of thoughts and opinions of him. Wow. So Nero, I mean, in addition to like persecuting Christians during his reign when he was alive, that title of the beast and that whole like Antichrist association wasn't until like hundreds of years after his death. Yeah. This is so weird. I yeah, I think it's kind of fun law wise, but it's also just like kind of wild because you don't really think about how the stories that we tell now came to be. And that's one of them. Wow, this is so interesting, especially because I know nothing about Roman history. <laughs> like you said St. Augustine, and I was like, when was that man alive? I, I've got those numbers. Uh... <laughs> I was like, when was Jesus? And I was like, oh, right, like AD. <laughs> Connecting some of that, that history, that lore with um, his speech here. Carter, do you want to read a bit of it? Uh, this is on page 206. Matricide was one of the worst crimes for Roman. Yet after I killed my mother, the people loved me even more. I'd stood up for myself, shown my independence. I became a hero to the common man. Then there were all those stories about me burning Christians alive. Real Romans loved me for taking a hard line. After I died, the commoners rioted. They refused to believe I was dead. My so-called bad acts made me wildly popular, while my good acts, like pardoning my enemies, bringing the empire peace and stability, those things just made me look soft and got me killed. This time, I will do things differently. I will bring back traditional Roman values. I will stop worrying about good and evil. The people who survived the transition, they will love me like a father. Oh, Many threads my. there, many threads. The Trump parallels <laughs> are so overwhelming in the way that this was written. You know, given the context of this being a book for children, a book through, like, Disney... I'll take it. That's that's kind of sickening. He he really did something. There's a blending of those themes also though, obviously this like this commentary about, you know, identifying a real populace within the populace, commentary about the value of violence towards minority groups is then intertwined with this language about fatherhood as a way of pulling all of the threads together where we get the trumpism and we get the specific personal implications of all of these actions and beliefs tied together in a way that really I think makes Makes for a very masterful villain monologue because it is so personal to who Nero is as a figure, as well as extrapolates so clearly on political ideology, on commentary in the world, and also intersects so cleanly with with our protagonists and the journeys that they have been on and the things that they're wrestling with um decolonization is not a metaphor tuck and yang essay very famous one of the principles of how people perform colonization is by taking on this fatherly role and by, you know, patronizing and infantilizing the people that you are colonizing and saying like, oh, well, I am the father and, you know, I have the power and I know best. And that is also a thread that we are pulling in here. But I, yeah, I really am so shooketh by the fact that The Hidden Oracle, a book I know the title of and did read, came out in 2016. So this entire series, we will look back on this in 20 years and be like, wow, isn't it amazing how children's media was telling children like subversive tales about what it means to stand up to the American government during times of tyranny? Yeah, the connections will continue. But the, the villain monologue is, is a really clear example of this. And then Nero, of course, 
doesn't just give a monologue. We we get actual violence specifically. He's known the whole time that Lou is actually trying to help Megan Apollo. And so he forces one, like the youngest child in his demigod assemblage of adopted children. And he makes them use Meg's rings to cut Lou's hands off. This, I feel like, is probably the most graphic scene maybe that has ever been written for um, a book by Rick Riordan. Can we think of any any others? There, I there? have to agree. No, you like This is the bloodiest. I mean, there, if you don't yeah. include Octavian blowing up, in which there was no blood witnessed. Exactly. That's the thing. This is so visceral in its descriptions and like bodily. You know, you, you can really understand what is happening in a way that is not emotional fear. It was played differently. Played differently. It was like you watching someone getting killed in a superhero movie versus in a thriller. Mm-hmm. This is more thriller in like its feel. Yes. There is a small child cutting off the hands. It's bad. And afterwards, we immediately, or well, I should say Apollo and Lou get thrown into prison together. And Meg is carted off to prepare for Nero's um, grand ceremony. The prison, okay, the prison for me was one of the moments where I was like, the parallels are getting a little bit overblown because like Trump is really famous for having uh, like a gold toilet, right? Yeah. And I think this is the energy that we're getting in this prison that like in a holding cell, the bars are made out of gold. There are chandeliers. There's all this dumb stuff in here. How could you not? I feel like this is really like a hammering (laughs) of that home. You know, sometimes you got to hammer. Yeah, he said, let's be clear. This is the fifth book in the series. This is what I was writing about the entire time. Like, (laughs) obviously, this man is not the only tyrant in history, in world history, certainly not in American history, certainly not. But this is what we were dealing with at the time that I was writing this book. And so I'm going to address it. And there is, you know, even if that were not the context, there is something eternally funny and gross and deeply appalling about the idea that you would have a holding cell for prisoners with gold bars and and a chandelier that is also fundamentally deeply chilling gold's really weak though you could just like push it apart soft metal soft metal more or less what happens here is that like apollo like has to heal lose injuries he has to regain some of his memories and powers as a deity of medicine which is, he, like, applies to treatment, yeah. but he also, like, literally his hands light on fire um, so that he can cauterize the wounds and that all just, like, works for him. Yeah, but it's also very strange. This whole prison sequence is very, sh- like, woo and, like, kind of dreamy because he is, like, slipping in and out of consciousness due to, like, pain and injuries as well. But he's trying to help Lou because she literally has, like, an open wound. This is, like, one of the first times we see some Apollo healing skills in this book or in the series because it's mostly been about, like, archery and super god strength. There is some, like, very emotional writing about the loss of Lou's hands and her identity as, like, Apollo thinks about being a musician and how important his hands are to him and how important Lou's hands are to her, like, identity as a warrior and being able to hold weapons. And it's very, like, touching that he would think about that and very, you know, frightening and something to think about. But also, Lou is a badass and prosthetics and physical therapy exist so we will not count her out by any means she's going to show you just how much of a badass she is but he has no idea at this point if nero has actually pressed the button and blown up new york city as well as all of camp half-blood and he thinks to himself the city could be burning around me right now and i'd see no sign of it in this windowless cell within nero's self-contained tower the ac would keep blowing the chandelier would keep glittering the toilet would keep flushing (laughs) rick has always been critical of 
like the 1% and what it means to have more. And Percy Jackson himself, you know, has always been an advocate for equal treatment of others and claiming your children and making sure everybody has homes at Camp Half-Blood. But really, this just feels so much more explicit than ever. Yeah. Something interesting that we discussed at this recent Fandom Forward meeting with Abigail Disney, a bunch of people were there representing different fandoms um, that like are under the Disney umbrella. And she was like, I think it's very interesting that Disney keeps acquiring and magnifying these properties and these worlds and fandoms that have very strong progressive values and that really teach kids very specific lessons about equality in different ways and that these fans are going to learn all of this from these properties and are going to turn at big giant companies and corporations like Disney and be like, hey, you need to live up to the properties that you are producing and like you need to hold yourself accountable to the lessons that you are teaching us and stuff like that which i thought was very interesting does this launch us into the the dream about jason i think it does apollo was a dream and lou basically saying like you can get all the information you need you just have to be like a lucid dreamer more or less and apollo's like oh is that true okay (laughs) we begin with this dream about jason where He's imagining Jason. Let's be clear. This is not a magical conduit to the underworld. He is literally putting the words from his subconscious into Jason's mouth. And what are the words that Jason subconsciously has to say? Jason, my voice was a ruined sob. You're here. His smile flickered. His eyes were nothing but smudges of turquoise dye. Still, I could feel the quiet strength of his presence, and I heard the kindness in his voice. Well, not really, Apollo. I'm dead. You're dreaming, but it's good to see you. I looked down, not trusting myself to speak. Before me sat a plate of fish tacos that had been turned into gold, like the work of King Midas. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't like it. I'm so sorry, I managed, at last. No, no, Jason said. I made my choice. You're not to blame. You don't owe me anything except to remember what I said. Remember what's important. You're important, I said. Your life. Jason tilted his head. I mean, sure. But if a hero isn't ready to lose everything for a greater cause, is that person really a hero? He weighted the word person subtly, as if to stress it could mean a human, a fawn, a dryad, a griffin, a pandos, even a god. But I struggled to find a counter-argument. I wanted so badly to reach across the table, grip Jason's wrists, and pull him back into the world of the living. But even if I could, I realized I wouldn't have been doing it for Jason. He was at peace with his choices. I would have been bringing him back for my own selfish reasons because I didn't want him to deal with the sorrow and grief of having lost him. All right, I relented. A fist of pain that had been clenching in my chest for weeks began to loosen. All right, Jason. We miss you, though. His face rippled into colored smoke. I miss you, too. All of you. Apollo, do me a favor. Beware Mithras's servant, the lion, snake-entwined. You know what it is and what it can do. I... What? No, I don't! Tell me, please! Jason managed one last faint smile. I'm just a dream in your head, man. You've already got the info. I'm just saying. There's a price for bargaining with the Guardian of the Stars. Sometimes you have to pay that price. Sometimes you have to let someone else do it. Dun, dun, dun. And he dissolves. Okay. I don't know how anyone else feels about this. That was really cool. Really? I loved that it was like an impressionist painting and that like he was really just kind of imagining Jason to be there and his eyes were like turquoise smudges. Okay. And all those weird things that happen in a dream that you can't explain. Like what is the metaphor of the plate of goldfish tacos? The dream as a framework and the way it is described 
I'm on board for. The things I am not on board for are what Apollo is imagining Dream Jason to say. Specifically, these lines about heroism are... Someone else made this comment as well, that they are like so incredibly generic. Because Jason is incredibly generic and Apollo didn't actually know him. Like He is making shit up. Yes. That makes sense, but like I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that this placement, combined with one other line, which we have to revisit, which is that there's a price for bargaining with the Guardian of Stars. Sometimes you have to pay that price, and sometimes you let someone else do it. This doesn't work for me. This is not giving me there's power in yielding. Everyone has a role to play. This, to me, is giving plot cheat code. I don't know. Like This is such a perfect opportunity for Apollo to legitimately have to question like he's he's thought he might die in several of the other books but this is an opportunity for him to not have the like am i willing to sacrifice myself for a good cause question the question that's being posed here is one about immortality specifically like he could live his life as a regular human and like have have a normal length human life and appreciate that for all all that is entailed in that or he could let somebody else make that sacrifice and having dream jason show up and say oh it's okay if someone else does it what work is that doing here? For me, the work that that's doing is to give Rick a cheat code and sort of an easy way out to say, Apollo has really grown, but also it is really important for us to return to the status quo and make sure that Apollo is a full god and part of the big 12 members of the Greek pantheon again. That's fair. And there's something specifically about like having Jason say this, even though it is acknowledged to be like a dream version of Jason, but like it is, it's just like the idea of like heroic martyrdom coming back to be like, Apollo, like I know what you think you have to do, but actually you don't have to do it. I'm really mixing my metaphors here, but it's also giving freezing the water from the dam that's about to come and destroy Arendelle, which oh, is boop. obviously a metaphor for many other things. But like, do you, do you know what I mean? Like where, like, this is like a weird way of getting around consequences that doesn't really, I think, accomplish anything that is in service of the story unless you feel like people are going to be really anxious about some sort of meaningful loss as compared to the status quo before the story started, you know? <laughs> I think that's all super fair. I think that when I read it, I wasn't thinking as much about the way that Apollo was going to like progress after this book as a character, but more about <laughs> the fact that when you're fighting as a hero, you don't always get to be the person to pay the price. Like, sure, it would be mm. dandy if you were the one who could sacrifice yourself, but when you're in a war and you're fighting for a cause, you don't know how many other people are going to get hurt and are going to be affected. And you need to be aware that you're stepping into something that puts not only you in danger, but Meg and everybody else, and Lou, who just lost her hands, and all these other foster children, and everybody else who's implicated in this. And that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, like, you're not the only person who's paying the price for your grand ideals. I, I, I don't know. I keep juxtaposing this mentally with a conversation that Percy has with other people about yielding, and how we thought that that was, so, you know, like, that that's so critical to basically yeah. all of the books in which Percy is a really important character. And how this just, to me, like, I, it, I think it reads a little differently. Their lessons were very different that they had to learn. That's true. They're very different Personal contexts. loyalty versus being Not an being asshole. a terrible person, yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Can I talk about something else within this hero monologue? Yes. First of all, the monster rights of it all. Again, love to see... <laughs> Apollo thinking about not only humans, but trogs and fawns and dryads and griffins and pandos all being important and like expanding our definition of the word person. What stood out to me the most was immediately <laughs> the Nico and Bianca of it all. And the same lesson that Nico had to learn 
in Titan's curse as a very young child, Apollo now having to learn as he gets over the death of Jason, which is that wanting to bring somebody back is more for yourself than it is for them. I do think it is an intentional callback as much as it is like a generic lesson about grief. I really was like, this is literally exactly what Bianca says to Nico. So it has to be a callback to the original series. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. He does wake up after this and Lou is watching him on the sofa here. We're, we're going to do a couple of pull quotes from this that I thought were interesting. Paul says, as a god of healing, I knew something about psychology and mental health, though I'll admit I did not always apply the best practices to myself. There's a lot of specific mentions of mental health in this book and literally no other book before this. And I just think that's really interesting. Also because Apollo, does he know anything about mental health? Because we've had seen literally no evidence of that before this. Although I guess he is getting his healing powers back and maybe that that's, you know, a part of that. He just didn't care about it before. <laughs> I guess. Perhaps he had like abstract book knowledge about it and just happened to behave an out of control child with no processing power all the time before, like for fun. As, as like a cute little um, exercise and in compartmentalizing intellectual knowledge from practices. But we do have a more interesting conversation that is connected to some dreams that Apollo has about Meg and Meg's interactions with Nero. I knew my anxiety about my own weaknesses was getting mixed up in my anxiety about Meg. Even if I somehow made my way back to Mount Olympus, I didn't trust myself to hold on to the important things I'd learned as a mortal. That made me doubt Meg's ability to stay strong in her own toxic home. Can I, can I read the next paragraph? Because it's, I think it's important. This is 225. Yeah. The similarities between Nero's household and my family on Mount Olympus made me increasingly uneasy. The idea that we gods were just as manipulative, just as abusive as the worst Roman emperor. Surely that couldn't be true. Oh, wait. Yes, it could. Ugh, I hated clarity. I preferred a softer Instagram filter on my life. Amaro, maybe. Or Perpetua. That is the most boomer trying to cosplay as an elder millennial <laughs> bullshit I have oh ever. Oh my gosh. I laughed so hard. <laughs> Rick is so funny sometimes. <laughs> I knew that the Instagram filters had names, but like I know that in the same way that I remember that like Disney Channel had original movies. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rick Riordan and you're watching Disney Channel. Oh my god, I would kill for that. Oh my god, they should. The children need to do that and just post them as YouTube videos that no one will ever be able to watch because they are not commercials that exist <laughs> on Earth anymore. <laughs> Aww. Don't you get nostalgic when you accidentally see a commercial like on Hulu or something? Let me tell you, I watch Abbott Elementary the day of. So I With see commercials. commercials. Yep. I see them at 4.9 times speed but i'm connected to the people <laughs> I, I i remember what it's like to be um either myself 10 years ago or an old person in america right now who sells cable yeah yeah i do love that we really set up this zeus nero thing like you mentioned earlier oh and we were really leading into this like naming it observation like full-on black and white the gods and nero are the same everyone with power is bad people just shouldn't have unequal power i guess yeah it's true because it's middle grade, it's difficult to understand like the degree to which Rick is leaning into unreliable narratorness and where he's doing it. And this is a good check-in. For, for Apollo to show a self-awareness, which is good, but also because, I don't know, like I just generally don't trust Apollo and it's nice to have sort of a benchmark point for us to think about how Meg is feeling about all of this and what she might be experiencing. For me, this helps to recontextualize her experiences as one of frustration where she doesn't really understand how to communicate or like how to process her feelings. But it doesn't really seem like she 
she feels like love or nostalgia really for for Nero in these moments or that there's like a real risk that she's going to like betray anybody again or something. I mean, the trashing of the room like does lean into that. Yeah. She's angry at something. Yeah. And then Nero comes in, he says like two lines, she gets angry again and she doesn't really know what to do with it. And there's this figure there that she once thought of as a friend of confident the father Mm -hmm. and he's putting that act on again apollo sees it break for like minuscule of a second but he's putting that act on again he's putting that face on and meg's there like this was my safe place and she hasn't worked out how to not make it her safe place and find a new one yet yeah and apollo is literally seeing meg do that and thinking probably to himself how many times he has been manipulated by zeus and thought of Zeus as his father when in reality he was a horrible, horrible, violent, violent, manipulative abuser. Yes. Ooh, good one, Rick. <laughs> oh, except for Lance Reddick. I'm going to be rooting for Lance Reddick season one of the show. I just, I don't know what I'm going to do about that. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're we're transitioning into a moment where Apollo, in his lucid dreaming for information, meets the, the guardian of the Fasces. We heard earlier that this person is a guardian of... Or like some sort of servant of Mithras. And so I'm going to just do a quick, like 30 second long explanatory comment about this. So Mithras is an Iranian god. I think they mentioned, Lou refers to this person as like a Persian import deity or something. Mithras was uh, worshipped in the Zoroastrian tradition in Persia. But there was like a religious set of practices and a religious culture built around this deity in Rome and like based out of central Rome and also throughout the empire among various soldiers and such. And as Luke kind of alludes to, it's a like a very ritualistic practice that involves handshakes and meals at set times. One of and, the more culty cults. Yes. The Wikipedia page refers to it as a religious cult. Far be it for me to to um, distinguish between what is a regular quote-unquote organized religion and what is a cult, but it is a practice that seems to involve a lot of secrecy and strong social relationships between practitioners. One of the things that was most useful for me in the Wikipedia page was that it's compared to Christianity in like, say, the first or second century in the way that it was practiced by some Romans and understood by the majority of Romans who were not participants of this religious practice. We should say that they were both sort of like persecuted, ascendant, small religions that were gaining footholds from outside the empire within the empire among small uh, persecuted sects of other Romans. And also one of the other things that's mentioned is that this figure that we're talking about, the snake lion guardian, there's very little actual consensus from anthropologists and from historians about what deity this is, if it has a name. Like the Wikipedia page lists like eight different potential names that people might attribute to this figure. (laughs) And no one actually knows what it's supposed to stand in for or what people believe about it or any of these other questions about the belief system surrounding this figure all of which is to say that like or any of the things that rick's saying about this figure being tied to immortality in mythology grounded in anything maybe not not in a way that is definitive in our historic understandings of this figure mithra is also this is who we're talking about right we're talking about mithra we're talking about the cult of mithra mithra is also a god that is mentioned in the Vedas, so in certain um, Indian uh, mythologies. Yes. The Silk Road of Gods. <laughs> <laughs> so Drew Owen. So basically what we get out of this interaction, though, in practice 
is that it is heavily implied. We don't we don't like put this in the text yet that the price to access the fasces is immortality, which is okay. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's like a little arbitrary based on especially this historical context where like, is there any connection between this lion snake figure and immortality? Like, not really. He was just a guardian. It was just and a so guardian figure. Like, he's going to guard the fasces. Why not? I like it. Yeah, I, I like having another conversation about, about potentially sacrificing immortality. And we have too many battles that are just people hitting each other with swords. And we're going to have a lot of that without making the Mithras guardian also about that. I love anything that pulls in gods from non-explicitly Greek and Roman pantheons, especially from the surrounding areas that Rome was either colonizing or interacting with. I want to see Britannia. Oh! A bit like uh, Uncle Sam in America became the personification of Britain, based off Athena. I think we're going to see some more, like, Iranian, Persian, Indian... North African gods popping up in The Sun and the Star, the first book in Rick Riordan Phase 4, Multiverse of Madness. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe even some Hawaiian gods. You know, Apollo apparently has been to Hong Kong. There's a lot of room for inclusion here. There sure is. Well, okay. That almost brings us to the point where we're wrapping up. Apollo wakes up and sees that Lou has attached um, a fork and knife to her respective forearms, which is sickening it's impressive she yeah. literally did this while apollo was asleep like with her mouth <laughs> that is Queen. a giant woman, giant woman. <laughs> sisters are doing it for themselves and with that that's like basically a wrap we have some planning we're ready to go time to jailbreak time to jailbreak time to launch a counter assault time to make sure that camp Half-Blood does not blow up as well as the rest of new york city hopefully everyone arrives hopefully everyone arrives hopefully the trogs show up I cannot wait to talk about the button pushing. (laughs) It's going to be really fun. Oh, and where can people find you in the podcast on social media? The podcast is Through the Mist. If you search that on whatever you're listening to this on, it should pop up. I'm also on one social, at through underscore mist on Instagram. So you can follow that for find us there. Find Owen there and bombard him with all of your lore questions please that's what i do you can find us on instagram at seaweed brain podcast on twitter at seaweed brain pod we have a patreon it's patreon.com slash seaweed brain this is the month of february so i believe we'll be doing a crazy ex-girlfriend episode again if you want to ask us questions on the reviews we will answer them in grave detail apparently um do that on whatever platform you're listening on or you can just give us a rating and then send us a message on instagram we will see y'all next week thanks owen thanks bye all